And welcome back to the square, everybody. We're feeling good after that holiday party, boys. Yeah, that was great. Mm-hmm. Thanks to everybody who, friends new and old who showed up. And thanks for the staff at Row Halls for making it so great as well and making all those Tom and Jerry's. Props to them. Um, to them. I think we ended up making, I, I didn't add up the final tally, but I think we ended up making about 700 bucks for Vive. So thank you to everyone involved and everyone who came. Thank you, especially uh, Snake for, Snake did the vast majority, Snake and, and Kel did the vast majority of like the setup and stuff. And uh, Snake, Snake knows how to throw a party. Snake okay. knows how to throw a party. So you want to party, you party with Snake. Mm-hmm. But we're, uh, we're, we're partying in our own way today, talking about, of course, the news. And things that happen in Buffalo and Erie County, uh, whether they be, you know, political or cultural or what have you, because that's what we do here, the square, mm-hmm. you know, just like at the old, as a reminder for the folks who maybe are new listeners, maybe old listeners who need to be reminded, it is just like the old Thursday at the square days. That's where we get our name. That's the spirit that we try to invoke. And I'll tell you, Jim, if we were back at Thursday at the square, you know, many years ago, what would they say if they heard the workers at Starbucks now have a union. There's a Starbucks in Buffalo? <laughs> <laughs> and their union. And their union. Uh-huh. Oh. And their union. Yes, we had two of the three locations that filed uh, with the NLRB uh, for consideration to be unionized uh, have a vote go through to be Union stores, so that is the Elmwood location of Starbucks, and then the uh, the Genesee location. Now the Camp Road one, I get there may have been some tomfoolery from the Starbucks execs, maybe moving employees around, mm-hmm. who maybe were in favor of voting no. Right, and and the Who's to say the Genesee one is still like there's there's some ballots that are being contested, so it's not official that they're they're unionized, but it's pretty much official. I mean, far be it from me to suggest that. Uh, a large corporate entity would have some chicanery involved in a union vote. But, um, you know, there might have been some little bit of fishiness going on, Mm -hmm. shall we say. But regardless of that, we have at least one confirmed location that has unionized. And congrats to them. That has to feel so good. Right. Oh, my God. I saw them celebrating on Twitter and and all that. It was just good to see. Feel good moment. Finally a win. Yeah, no, it's 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 a that's a big win for them, obviously, uh, but for other workers in Starbucks at locations across the country, um, I think you're going to see some sort of domino effect where you'll see more stores, more stores, and hopefully other companies. Other yes, you know. a fascinating uh, subplot of this though is really like how throughout this whole process we got to have a little look into how a company like a mega corporation like Starbucks. Basically, they didn't really address their uh, employees' concerns. Uh, there was a intimidation rather than, you know, a, an actual like, hey, let's make this a better workplace for you. Let's make the better, mm-hmm. let's make better working conditions. You know, when we had Michelle Eisen on, everything that we heard there, the real takeaway for me is that they're like, now nah, this is what's going to be, dog. Th- mm-hmm. This is what it's going to be, and you're going to deal with it, and that they were pushed to to this point. So. I don't know. It's just kind of, kind of fascinating that uh, you know Starbucks. It really, it feels like Starbucks got themselves to this point. Honestly, like I, I truly believe that Starbucks ultimately, as a co- company corporation, they pushed it and they pushed it, and then okay, your employees were like, well, all right. Well, it's especially like a company like Starbucks, which tries to have this reputation as a more liberal, more 
uh, worker-friendly work environment to just ignore the the pleas of your workers to the point where they felt that they had no choice other than to organize. I'll never forget the TikTok drink, TikTok drinks thing. Yeah. That oh that that stuck out with me. Uh, like Michelle said when she was on the show, where people would come in with like twelve and thirteen part drinks because they saw them on TikTok, and they would order them, and the poor baristas are watching the line go like you know halfway out the door. And trying to make these drinks, and Starbucks corporate loves it because they're moving this product, and then their raspberry foam or whatever is mm-hmm. out because it's some TikTok drink, and now you don't have it for the rest of your concoctions. I don't know it. And again, Starbucks corporate loves it. They're like, yeah, fuck yeah, order more TikTok drinks, and right? Yeah. They, or, they love it, and then they're gonna shit on their employees for not getting things done fast enough, right? And, and you know, like I, you know, Starbucks like released like, oh well, the our average salary is like seventeen dollars an hour. Well, you know, look, if your CEO is making forty million, that spreads out a long way. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, don't tell me that your average. Tell me what your median wage is, right? Well, and some. Of course, you know, the dipshit legion comes out on this. Like I saw on Facebook, somebody's like, well, if you Bernie Sanders, if you divided the CEO salary by the the three hundred ninety thousand employees they have, it'd only be forty two dollars each per person. Okay, maybe if you divided the the CEO salary three hundred ninety thousand ways. One, it is insane still that it's forty dollars a person. Yeah, like that's, that's still so that's still nuts to me. Two, it's not just the CEO making that kind of money. It's like all of the you know the marketing people, the upper vice presidents, management, etc. Like there's a whole cluster of people who are making a fuck ton of money at this corporation based on the fact that a whole lot of other people aren't. Right. Surprising to me, like the amount of shitheads on social media in the area this area which is a pretty strong union area but there's a fair amount of people who are just like well these kids have no idea what they're getting into because it's just going to be union dues and they're gonna be paying salaries for union people who aren't going to do anything and i was like first of all how fucking much are you giving away the game by calling everybody who works at starbucks a kid yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. right like you just you don't understand and you're 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 saying like oh well like, I saw somebody and I was like the same person who who was tweeting like how like unions rip people off was like like I've never seen a a, a, a India Walton sign in front of a nice house like just giving away like their classism the entire time. Uh, speaking of uh, local getting, shitheads, local shitheads getting on social media about this. Uh, our boy Stefan Mahilo uh, said something about how. Uh, coffee is going to go from seven and a half dollars to thirty four and a half dollars at Starbucks. Uh, first of all, I get a large cafe au lait at Starbucks. It's yeah. less than four dollars. It's not seven and a half dollars as it is. And also, like if they have to raise prices a couple of dollars, which they wouldn't have to raise it seventeen dollars or twenty seven dollars a coffee. You fucking turd. <laughs> it would. They might have to raise it like a dollar. Yeah. Because they're going to sell so many of those fucking things that or, they can cover. Weren't you saying that there was a line to the street in the Cheek yeah, I, location? I went to go to the, the Cheek Dawaga one on my way here today, and I had to like get out of line because the line was so long that I wouldn't have been here on time. Hasn't the joke been about Starbucks that their coffee is like expensive as shit for years? Right. Like, hasn't you been, go in knowing that. Hasn't that been the punchline? Like yes. before, before anybody ever dreamed that there would be a union at Starbucks, people have been saying for years, oh man, these new coffee places and, and the price of coffee, like it used to be able to get coffee for 50 cents a cup and now it's, you know, 
four dollars. That like people have been saying that for years when the workers have been paid like shit. Right. Well, <laughs> and, they, and they still go. Well, the, the other thing is that like Stefan Mahailu like got like endorsed by like the the chair of like the CSEA this year for his supervisor run because he he walks the walk and, and talks the talk about backing unions. Except as soon as he's no longer running for office, fuck unions, piece oh, of shit geez. out of them. Yeah. What yeah. a disingenuous turd. Yeah, he sucks. Yeah. I don't want to give him more oxygen than, well, I, I, it, than needed. But yes, he is a disingenuous turd. I mean, like, look, I get that, like, as of December 31st, like, he doesn't matter anymore. But he's not going to disappear. Like, you, you're not going to color me surprised if he runs for office again in a year or two. It's just reactionary bullshit. Like, it really, again, I as we do this show and as I see stuff on social media or in the media in general... Like I, I don't want to say like I, I've developed some kind of like vision about how these things work, but I, I truly feel a little bit more informed how much of it is just like to get you pissed off and to get you mad. So listeners, if you're pissed off and mad, I get it. Just know that the Stefan Mahailus of the world exist to do that. That that's why he's there. You're you listener are happy about the Starbucks union. Well, he's gonna tell you why it's bad. Yeah, and he did say that he's a Tim Hortons person, which I was like, I could, I feel like it's trash coffee for trash people, so I figured that that makes Jesus. sense. Uh, but like, sorry for all you Tim Hortons drinkers listening today. Yeah, whatever, you're trash. <laughs> uh, but uh, I respect the real trash people who go to McDonald's for their coffee. Oh, McDonald's yeah, coffee's yeah. fine. It's good. It's actually pretty good. Yeah. No, no, the real trash people get their coffee at Speedway. Oh. <laughs> Hell yeah! <laughs> right. It's no Wilson Farms. I'll tell you. No, that. that's, uh, oh. what do you what do you get with your coffee? Uh, a couple of Slim Jims, because I <laughs> I go to Speedway, <laughs> pack of smokes. <laughs> that's it. Uh, but yeah, like, I, I hope Tim Hortons unionizes yeah. just so that like that Stephen Mahalo makes his life harder that he can't even go to Tim Hortons anymore. I love it. Now they they start charging thirty four and a half dollars for a coffee at Tim Hortons. <laughs> well, also of note too is we're we're talking about the different Starbucks locations. I mean, that Elmwood location has unionized. Their, their, their main competitor on that same strip is also unionized. That's right. <laughs> like, right. Spot That's Coffee right. is also a union shop. So if you want to get, like, a non-union cup of coffee on Elmwood, it's like... Aroma. Aroma. So if, if you're a local shithead, then... I, and not to denigrate those places, but I'm not dra- trying to drag them into this. Just just of note that their main corporate competitor is also a union shop. Right. And, and like and, you know, you go to Aroma and a, a regular cup of coffee, I think, costs more at Aroma than it costs at Starbucks. Absolutely. And they're not and they're not unionized. Right. Now, at least if you go to Aroma, you can get a beer. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah. You can get a beer. Yeah. They have pretty good selection, too. Yeah, they need to start selling beer at Starbucks. They, they really did, should. They did a Mighty Taco. Yeah. Hell yeah. Moving on to the governor. Hello, governor. Hello. Hello. Hello, Kathy Oakle. I don't know what that was. It was like English, <laughs> and then it, w- it went to Australian-ish <laughs> right. real fast. It was right. pretty bad. The governor, Kathy Oakle. she came out this week, Jim. What'd she say? She was like, hey, uh, fuckers. Put masks on. Time to put the masks back on. You either have to uh, require vaccination for entry, or you got to wear a mask in a public place again. Starting the thirteenth, I think. It's spiking tomorrow. like fucking crazy. Right. Holy shit. And and we got the uh, Omicron or whatever it's called. Omicron. Um, Omicron. Yeah. Now the, the Autobot. Yes. Omicron. Now is the Necronomicron. <laughs> we need Bruce Campbell on the. <laughs> On the case. <laughs> is this any different, Jim, from what Mark Polencars has instituted in Erie County? 
No, no, not really. Uh, so I expect to see Senators Gallivan and Rath uh, demanding to take away Kathy Hochul's powers. Get on in, that, in, this In the state Senate. Yeah, look, I mean, much. I'm going to echo what we said about Poland cars instituting it here in Erie County. I think it's a good idea. I think it's ultimately the right way to incentivize this sort of thing. And I think it's reasonable. Like we are in a pandemic. So either you're vaccinated and you've taken that that step medically, that kind of precaution to prevent the spread of COVID, or you're not fine. I think you're personally, I think you're a shithead, but there are reasons. There are people who can't get vaccinated for health reasons, what have you. Okay, you should not be in public without a mask on to begin with. <laughs> right. <laughs> like if you're that medically compromised that you can't get a COVID vaccine, Dollars to donuts, you're probably, you know, I don't want to say in rough shape, but you're you might be a little bit delicate and and COVID would probably be you're, very bad for you. You're wearing a mask and you're making everyone around you wear a mask. Right. Yeah, I think I think if, if it's medically impossible for you to get a vaccine because you have you're immunocompromised or whatever, you are probably the type of person who is like, everybody has to mask up. Yeah. I doubt you're like, fuck it, I'll take my chances. You're not you're not doing that. Right. It's you know it's not like you're licking doorknobs. Like you're you know, Oh, for sure. And again, if you're a business, we talked about this when Paul and Cars did it. If you're a business, you know what? You want to be like the Robbie De Niro's of the world. Okay, you can do that. That's fine. People got to wear a mask in your establishment. Mm -hmm. Now, am I so naive to think, guys, that people will go into those establishments and like they might put the mask on their chin or they whatever? I mean, all right, that's up to the Erie County and state enforcement mm -hmm. of the mask mandates, you know, and and for what it's worth, like businesses have gotten pretty heavy fines for that stuff. Was it ten thousand for the first fine? I I don't know. I, well, maybe it was, it was for the county, I think, because yeah. I, I know a, I know a bar or two that like got hit with it. But I, I'm not saying that people won't like do the chin diaper thing or whatever, or they not even wear them at all while they're in there. But at the same time, like there are a lot of businesses that aren't the Robbie De Niro that they're just like okay. All right, if I'm Target or if I'm, you know, Wegmans, like, all right, you're just going to wear a fucking mask in here, and that's what's up. Well, uh, speaking of, of wearing masks and Robbie De Niro, uh, this Thursday, this past Thursday, was the uh, the organized walkout of schools oh, good. by students. Uh, uh, I saw, like, Akron had a lot of people. Like, I actually didn't think that many kids went to Akron. There was that wa as, as many that walked out. But then, like, as you got closer to, like, the city and to, like, real towns, Hamburg had, like eight kids outside in front of the school, high school wow. and like one or two of them were still wearing masks even though they were out they walked out to protest masks <laughs> i mean okay. color me shocked that there are there are kids who are shitheads <laughs> right right like like uh, like oh well, like how much of it is the kids and how much of it is their parents well influence? here's my is like look i'll tell you right now like when i was a shithead kid in, in in school i maybe not because i would have thought this was stupid but like any opportunity to be like i guess i won't go to class for an hour and i'm like i'm not gonna get in trouble with my parents because they think this is a good idea yeah, yeah, yeah. like i would go walk out Go stand outside. Absolutely. Like, maybe not in maybe not in December because it's fucking cold. But like you know, like why can't we have this walk out in September when it's nice out? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I think there are a lot of kids who are just oh, we're getting out of class. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, like yeah, yeah. Fu yep, fuck masks yeah. or whatever. I don't right. care. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, like it could have been anti anything, and they're like whatever. Sure. Like I, I can't wait to get, walk out because I, that way I don't have to go to you know Mrs. Fernbeck's math class. Mm-hmm. I do wonder how, back to the the mask mandate here, I, I do wonder how this is going to jive with Kathy Hochul's previously stated desire to have people return to office. Mm -hmm. 
as soon as possible. It lines up, I guess, like a lot of businesses, like if you're returning to the office, um, you know, you, you probably need to be masked or vaccine mandated those businesses anyway. But mm-hmm. it, man, it's going to suck. And starting from a place of privilege here, saying that I don't work in like the service industry where like the Starbucks people, for instance, yeah. were already working wearing masks throughout this whole pandemic, being customer facing and being exposed to COVID constantly. So point of privilege, but like a lot of people going back to an office environment, wearing masks and going about their daily business. Cause I assume a lot of offices are just going to either they tell you you're going to be vaccine mandated or they just don't want to deal with the hassle. And Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm assuming more of them than not are going to be mask instead of vaccine. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting to have people go back into offices and like, be masked at the office. Yeah. I, I do want to talk real quick about my favorite anti-mask social media post I saw this week was by erstwhile former mayoral candidate Ben Carlisle. Oh. <laughs> he of the 219 votes that he received total. In, yeah. uh, there were two non, 219 people who wrote his name down. Oh, yeah. He must have a big family. Oh. But he, yeah, he got 219 votes. But uh, So he posted, because uh, Poland Cars had like a press conference, and Poland Cars at one point said, my public. And Ben Carlo took umbrage with that, and he was like, "I am not your, you know, surf or whatever. Like, I'm not, I'm not your subject." <laughs> uh, but then Ben Carlo continued, and he was like, "You know, if you worry about your health so much, why don't you lose fifty pounds?" Oof, fat shaming. Yeah, fat shaming. Fat shaming. Mark Polenkars, who, like, realistically, if he lost fifty pounds, would be very thin. Yeah, he's he's not that fat. Right. Yeah. Right. Like we, we were talking about this the other day, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> like Polenkars, you know, I think he put on a few pounds while in office but first off who hasn't yeah. secondly though you don't look at him you 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 go oh hey tubby you know right <laughs> like he's not the guy that i would i would and i say this is a pretty husky gentleman myself but right yeah like if paul and carl's lost like five or ten pounds you'd be like man he looks pretty trim right, right. if he lost 50 pounds you'd be like i mean is he sick like is our county executive like did, did yeah is, does he have some sort of disease yeah, no, that's that's a ridiculous thing to say. Yeah, no, it was ridiculous. Not not surprising who said it, but mm-hmm. r- ridiculous thing to say nonetheless. Back to the governor, mm-hmm. the governor. So we're talking about the governor here. We're talking about Kathy Hochul, and we may have been talking about a potential competitor up until last week. I think Thursday. Yeah, Tish James. Tish James said, "You know what." Not going to run for governor, just going to focus. I'm going to run for re-election for attorney general. Shocking, really. So that probably dashes Zephyr Teachout's hopes of... Probably AG. dashes Zephyr Teachout's hopes of being AG. If Zephyr Teachout even follows through now, yeah. now that right. Tish James is in the in the race. Realistically, probably just wraps the governor's race up in a bow for Kathy Hochul. What do you think about that, Ree? I mean, we're not getting the debungler, I'm assuming, <laughs> if they have Tish James dropping out. So Right. I Look... I think that what the Democrats believe that they need to do, as evidenced by Tish James dropping out, as evidenced by Jay Jacobs coming out and saying, Jay Jacobs, head of the New York State Democratic Party, coming out and saying that, you know, we need, we're, we're going to have a tough year in 2022 and we need to rally around a candidate or our candidates. So they're of the belief that, one, they're going to get killed in 2022, which, yeah. I think we're being real that yes, they are the Democrats are probably going to get hosed in the midterms and all the elections in between. But they think the best way to counteract that is to consolidate behind one candidate for governor. And I disagree. I don't think that's going to be 
a good strategy, and I ultimately think it, it could. I don't think they're going to lose, but I really think that it it could be a lot more competitive than not. What do you think, Jim? I think I think it depends on what they do. If I had any faith that there was competency in the state party, I'd be like, well, you know, maybe what happens is if if they don't have to have a you know this bloodbath of a governor's primary, they can devote resources to defending Swazi's seat in the House or you know, trying to pick up you know, seats here or there in, in the House, depending on redistricting or defending at-risk members of the Assembly or especially the State Senate. I don't have any faith that they know how to do what, to, what they're supposed to do and that you know they may save all this infighting in the governor's race and potentially save a whole bunch of money at the state level for the state party and still fuck up and screw candidates over that are at risk. Well, one of the functions of primaries that I think really doesn't get talked about enough is that they're star making, you know, they're political star making, meaning that if you have somebody running in a primary, that's a way to have them get exposure to build up their profile. And ultimately, even if they lose in that said primary, they become an entrenched figure within your party. Think about mayor Pete, you know, on the national level, vaulting mm-hmm. to stardom. We all know who Mayor Pete is because he ran in the Democratic primary. Amy Klobuchar became a national figure for that very reason. It's a little different on the state level. I grant you that. But still, I think about a candidate like Jamani Williams, for instance, who running in this primary, and I, I assume is still intending on doing that, mm-hmm. running for governor. Here is a young, inspired, motivated person who could be the future of your party. And I think to basically close ranks and turn off the party to people like that is a, is a fatal error in even just building up your bench. Basically what they're saying to Jumani Williams is, yeah, bud, like we really have no interest in the thing that you got going on. I, I, I hear what you're saying and I agree to a certain extent, but like, you know, Mayor P or Amy Klobuchar made their names and became bigger national figures despite the fact that democrats kind of like the national mainstream leaders kind of closed ranks behind joe biden pretty early uh well that 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 might be a poor example with amy klobuchar and mayor pete because the democratic party nationally was very divided at that point there was still the obama holdouts and the hillary clinton faction that at that point the national democratic party was in a a very split place but I, I think my point remains, though, that primaries in general can be an opportunity to, again, like build up, the, build up the bench, build up the back ranks. What's been interesting, though, is we haven't. Well, actually, no. Cynthia Nixon, she was already a a person of note. <laughs> uh, but Zephyr Teachout running for governor that helped build her profile. Yeah, I mean, I look, I they're not going to get Jamani Williams to drop out of the race. I don't think they're going to get Swazi to drop out of the race. De Blasio hasn't officially entered, but, you know, I don't think they're going to get him. They're going to be able to convince him. So there's going to be a, a Democratic primary. It's just not going to be as titanic as one as we expected because they somehow were able to convince Tish James to get out. And I bring up Zephyr Teachout. It is interesting, too, that even still they're pretty much saying to Zephyr Teachout, nah, we don't really want what you have to right. offer, which is, you know. A bit discouraging. She's certainly certainly would be a great candidate and has a lot to yeah. offer uh, on that level. But, ladies and gentlemen, that is the Democrats. Right. Um, look, maybe 
Maybe Zephyr Teachout gets some, maybe somebody picks her up as a lieutenant governor. Remains to be seen. Moving back from the broader state level stuff, the governor stuff, we're, we're bringing it back home a little bit, guys, with a very important, very interesting story written by the uh, Investigative Post, our friends over at IP. This one was written by, by Jeff Kelly, produced by Jeff Kelly. So you got the big cheese, GK, throwing it in here for this story titled, Where's a Cop When You Need One? Uh, Buffalo police take much longer to respond to urgent 911 calls in black neighborhoods than in white enclaves. So I'm just going to read the first couple paragraphs here. In Buffalo, crime and the police response to it is a tale of two cities. Let's say you witness an assault in progress on the city's east side and call 911. That's a high priority call. The threat of harm is immediate and there is, or was at the time of the call, a suspect on the scene to arrest. The patrol officers who field the call are going to hurry, but they may not arrive as quickly as you'd hope. In 2019, the median response time for an assault in progress call in C and E districts, which cover most of the east side, was just over 21 minutes. The median response time for the same call, same 911 call in A district, which covers South Buffalo, was a little over 10 minutes, twice as fast. The difference is even bigger for domestic violence calls, in predominantly white South Buffalo, the median response time was about 10 minutes. In C District, the heart of the predominantly African-American East Side, it was almost 26 minutes. So let's just start there. Those times are going to get better now that Mastin voted against Byron. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. I, I don't know what to make of that. I, I don't know. Because, again, I, I'm trying not to say, hey, this is a clear indicator of, of racism or uh, policing gone wrong or whatever. I, I'm I'm really trying to give everybody the benefit of the doubt because it's it's such an important thing where you're calling the police and you know you're being assaulted or you're in a domestic violence situation. We know for a fact how important and how critical those times can be. Ten minutes can mean the difference between life or death for somebody being assaulted. Or it, it just I, I don't. I, I'm trying to I'm trying to wrap my head around it. Other than the fact that South Buffalo predominantly white also the predominant home for many police officers in western new york yeah i also wonder like there's nothing in the story and i don't know uh the way the staffing works if you are a newer cop in buffalo is there a district that you're more likely to be assigned to and then as you get seniority do you get to move into a district or, or d district and get away from c and e I I don't know. So like maybe maybe part of it could be, you know, just that like the cops in a district have more experience and are able to get to the things quicker. At, whereas like newer cops, maybe they're nervous and they're like, a, a, you know, a, a church rat and they don't they want to get there too quickly or whatever. Who knows? I don't I don't want to prescribe everything just to like racism and a lack of interest in caring for people of lower social status. No, and in fact, like this, you see something like this that ends up ends up appearing as is a commentary on the police, and people get very much up in arms, and they gra they grab their pitchforks and they say, "Oh, you know, uh, the, the cops are great," or "Ah, the cops are bad." And I get it. I'm, I don't want to say I I see both sides, but I I do in the sense that like we're in, in very reactionary times where people are just 
they see something and ultimately like the dopamine rush comes from being for or against it. And so they'll comment or share it or just be mad about it. But truly, if there is an issue within our police departments that ultimately lead to this disparity, like what is it? Like, wouldn't you want to know if you are a police officer and in good faith, you see this and you're like, what is wrong? Like if that were my job, if I was the commissioner of police or if I, you know, again, prescribing everybody the best intentions here, whether you think that's fair or right to do up to you, but me, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. If I saw this, that, Hey, one district had like double the response time. There's a problem. Like there's a problem. If somebody told you your company, like one area of the company was like doing things half as fast as the other one doing the same job, you'd be like, well, what the fuck is going on? What if the intentions aren't so good? I'll leave it up to you. Mm. Like, I mean, that's, that's, that's certainly, you know, a potential. I also wonder on zero chance. Right. I, I also wonder if say something like a district, the majority of the geography or a lot of the geography of a district is very low crime. A lot of the South Buffalo area is, is low crime. So they probably patrol the areas. So they're probably closer to where the calls come in, in, in a district. Whereas like something like C district, where the issues are more prevalent throughout. There's not like individual hotspots, right? In A district, like you can patrol along like Seneca Street and you know that there's a lot of issues there or like along like Hopkins, right? You know where the issues generally tend to be. In C district, if the entire district has equal issues for the most part, it, it might be harder to patrol. So like I could see that being like a, now that it wasn't the defense that the Buffalo Police Department used. <laughs> it, it was not. Yeah. So like I, I could imagine ways where like they're trying their best and I could come up with better defenses than they did. It just seems to correlate with the Black Lives Matter movement. That's all. It's yeah, just, it's no, just too it, convenient. It, it, it is. And like, you know, I said semi-jokingly, look, it's not going to get better because now that Mastin voted against the yeah, mayor, but right. I'm only semi-joking. Well, here's a couple couple points of interest, I think, from the article. And again, I will, we can link to it. I uh, highly encourage that you read it because one way or another, if you're a City of Buffalo resident or you're somebody who just is interested in the City of Buffalo at all, it, it really is important reporting. But a couple bullet points from the article here. Uh, citywide, response times for those five dispatch codes nearly doubled so for again for assaults they analyzed uh, uh, dispatch codes for assaults burglaries shootings domestic violence and people brandishing guns so over a period from january 2014 through july 2020 response times for those pretty important codes i'd say dispatch codes those doubled which is insane the most dramatic increases in response times involved reports of burglaries in progress and guns both up by 140%. Uh, citywide, police responded far more quickly to reports of shots fired with a median response time of 6.4 minutes, then to assaults in progress, 13.3 minutes, and domestic violence, 14.2 minutes. Which, on some level, I understand why you quickly need to respond to shots fired. I also think that assault in progress should be on the same level. <laughs> like, it might just be me. But, um, oh, and then to your point, Jim, response times were slower in neighborhoods with more crime, more poverty, and more people of color. Uh, for example, for the five dispatch codes we analyzed, response times in C District, covering the east side's most populous neighborhoods, 
were almost 125% longer than in South Buffalo's A district. In C district, the median was 18.3 minutes. In A district, it was 8.1 minutes. Oh my God. That's, uh, that's, that's pretty nuts. The, the, the only other big thing with this, the citywide slowdown in response times occurred over a period in which the annual number of 911 calls to Buffalo police for everything from murder to cats stuck in trees dropped by about 5%. Oh, so they're just out of practice. Well, they're, they're not getting this. It's like it's it's like when you watch a hockey game and the goaltender doesn't face a shot for like 12 minutes. And you're like, well, the next shot he sees, he's probably going to give up a goal because yeah. he's just he fell asleep. He's bored. Yeah. They're just out of practice. We, what we need to be doing is calling the is calling 911 more often. This conflated with the uh, the bit of propaganda that we got in the few months leading up to the mayoral election about how crime was rising dramatically in the city of Buffalo. Which, again, like I know there are peaks well, and valleys. Violent crime. Right. Sure, I know there are peaks and valleys on these things, but ultimately it gets sold that Buffalo has become a more violent place. And the implication, which we talked about at the time, is that somehow India Walton becoming mayor would ultimately lead to this rash of crime or something. Right, but, it, it would turn into escape from New York. Yes, which was hilarious because Byron Brown has been the mayor overseeing that perceived rise in violent crime. But what we're seeing here, and again, this data point doesn't totally disprove violence spiked at some point in 2021 or whatever. More that, hey, uh, overall, the police have been getting less calls, 911 calls, and yet you're trying to sell that it's more violent here than ever. Right. I guess not everybody who's involved in a violent crime is calling the police, although I bet most of the time they do. Well, I mean, it, or any crime, right? Like there's just there's just fewer 911 calls total both about like these five codes but like anything just in general like you said like everything to you know from uh, yeah, assault in progress to cat stuck in tree the 911 calls went down across the board which says like the needs for police may have decreased is it to the point where maybe you could i don't know cut some positions by not filling them when they became vacant like one part, you know, particular mayor candidate said it would be a, a potential way to, to deal with things. Maybe. I mean, like if you worked in your set in, in your job and there was just less need for you, wouldn't it make sense that your job would probably like maybe cut a couple of workers? But since 911 calls are going down across the board in the city of Buffalo, if you say that, well, maybe we need fewer cops, suddenly you're antifa and like you're anti-cop and you're just like the world's worst communist monster well and and they go on further in the article to note that yeah there there's been more staffing there's been more police on the force so you had a rise in actual police officers on the job you've had 911 calls for you know for those dispatch codes for violent crimes have gone down but were you to suggest that maybe we didn't need to throw as much funding in that direction and that there are other things that might need that kind of money. Yeah, you're right. You, you end up being like the face of Antifa, like you said, Jim, mm -hmm. just kind of ridiculous. And, and what was there? What was the BPD's defense? Uh, uh, the cars suck. Oh, the cars suck. They're using, they got pedal cars that they've been using to, to get around the city. But the, it only seems to be affecting the cars. On the east side, for some reason. Yeah, no, the, the maybe cars... The, maybe the gas stations there have bad gas. I don't right, know. Right, yeah. Um, the, or maybe, like, the speed limit in the east side. Oh. Like, you know, like, they don't want to turn on the lights and, like, cause an accident. Right, so, 
Um, you know, the, they're they're maintaining to the twenty mile an hour right. speed limit. Oh, okay. Well, that's that 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 makes sense to me. That's right. Uh, or maybe maybe there's a mechanical governor on all the cars in C district. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So we highly encourage you to read the article again. We'll rank, we'll rank it. We'll link it, and you can read it. I'll rank it too. You know, we'll rank it. Mm-hmm. Rank it. Now link it and read it. Um, it's great, great piece of reporting by Jeff Kelly and the Investigative Post, as always. Mm-hmm. What uh, what else on the local beat, boys? A little windy. Little windy. Little, little windy. windy. Little windy yesterday. Mm-hmm. We did set a, a new record high. It was the it was like 67 or some nonsense at the airport, breaking a, a 122-year-old record for the highest on December 11th Damn. temperature. But uh, also, like, Niagara Falls Airport recorded like a 71-mile-an-hour gust of wind. Oh, it was chaos. Yeah. Power outages. Even today, we're recording on Sunday. There's still people we know. Yeah. With power out. Yep. We had that grain silo, like, bust apart downtown. There was a bit of a sash. Yep. Know. Water blowing to this end of of the lake, and I think part of Riverworks was underwater. Their ice rinks. Right? It was it was the venue where Etid was playing, right? Like part yes, of the, the wall right. was out for yeah. for Tid the season. Exactly. God love you. If uh, it's a wild day, you yeah. went out there in the wind this weekend. Yeah, yeah. I was outside having a cigarette, and uh, I remarked that I felt like a plastic bag in American Beauty. <laughs> Katy Perry. Yeah, baby, your firework. Yeah. Was there someone outside like taking a video of you? Uh. Or- I mean, not that I saw, but, you know, the plastic bag didn't see anybody recording them either. They they were just focused on the self. Okay. <laughs> so hopefully by the time you're listening to this listener, if you are without power, you have your power back. Yeah. If not, you know, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> stock, stock up or keep your keep your stuff in your freezer cold, I guess. Right. Sports beat. Sports. We love it, folks. Well, yeah, we're, we're the sports podcast now. Well, only for rugby. Well, oh yeah, only for, for rugby and and for occasional LOL stories. Sure. Let's start with the, the the one that I'm interested in the most in. Bonnie's Rugby takes home the national championship, the D1 National Rugby Collegiate Championship over Penn State. Yes, with a final score of 19 to 18 in a nail biter at the end. Yeah. The Bonnies bring it on home. So Jim, bring, bring, it, it, bring it home from Houston. I'm the rugby guy, but you're the Bonnies guy. So let's start. What's your take on this? Uh, I will say that uh, my Bonnie social media was going nuts yesterday uh, because uh, the the basketball team ate shit. But the the people you know who suddenly never cared about rugby cared about rugby intensely. Yeah, it was a it was a great game going into the half. The Bonnies were up. Let's see, it was 1918, 14 to three. It's 14 to three at the half. Um, with a dominant performance by the Bonnies, it really was. And then after the half, they they, they scored again. They they missed the conversion. Or no, they no they they missed the conversion. So it was nineteen nineteen to three. Penn State uh, they left an opening for Penn State because Bonnies got uh, kind of a shitty yellow card, I thought. And uh, yeah, Penn State took that as a big opening, and they were on the attack, and it got real. Real close. At one point, Penn State missed a penalty um, that I said at the time, you know, they missed that. I said that was the game because at that at that point, the way rugby works is the try, which is the equivalent of a touchdown, is worth five points. And then there's a conversion kick, which is worth the two points, like the extra point in, in football. Um, you can also take penalty kicks that are basically like field goals, uh, the field goal equivalent. So Penn State 
missed a field goal and they had to have like two scores to win. I said, ah, that's probably <laughs> shut up, Ryan. Are you fucking kidding me? Oh, Don't sorry. you dare. Don't you dare. Who the fuck? No bullshit. Um, whatever. Long story short, the Bonnies, they held on Jim. Yep. They, they held on by the, the skin of their teeth or whatever you want to is the skin it, of their yellow country teeth. Is it fair to say that Alabama is to football as Bonnie's is to rugby now? No. 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 Okay. no. All, right. No, All right. no. I figured you'd hype them up a little bit, Jim. Uh, but I, mean, I was giving you an opening there. Yeah. No. I, let, you know, let's give it a couple of years. <laughs> okay. Uh, not quite yet. Not quite yet. But, uh, you, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, proud of, uh, you know, Tui and the boys down in, uh, in Allegheny. Hell yeah. So shout out to Tui. Shout out to. Man, what an amazing run! What an amazing team they put together! Amazing program. Yep. Uh, as I mentioned before, like last week when we talked about this, uh, the first person I saw on social media to post a uh, celebration that the Bonnies won was Assemblyman Conrad. All right, all right. Uh, he, you know, he and he was touting the the Kenmore connection to the Bonnies. Absolutely. Yeah. So good job by the Bonnas. Did the Sabers do a thing? Jim? Well, well it's. Kind of, but then it, they were told it didn't count, even though it should have counted. That so they played the Rangers a couple of days ago, and they 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 scored a, a tying goal in the last minute, or what they thought was a tying goal. It was called a good goal on the ice. Then they overturned it and said no goal. And the next day, the NHL was like, "Yeah, we fucked up. It should have been good." So like this, the LOL Sabers who are terrible, even when they do something right, get screwed. So, sounds like someone had some money on that game. <laughs> Over in Toronto, holy shit! And listening to that makes it's a messed up. Shit. It makes me want to do the snooze thing. I I don't. <laughs> the Sabers just do not move the needle for me. They haven't in a long time. But uh, I feel ba- if you feel bad, I feel bad, listener. And if you think it's kind of funny, I actually also think it's kind of funny. So, <laughs> good job to uh, the Sabers and uh, sabering it up. Yep. Well, I think that is a wrap on the news of the week. But up next, we have. I would say what a very solid uh, civics lesson. Yeah, uh, if you ever missed uh, a participation in government class when you were in high school, we've got your makeup today. You're gonna get it today, baby. Yes, Jessica Overholt from the Erie County Board of Elections. She's an office manager. Came to give us the vegetables, huh? Yeah, uh, yeah, straight up from the farm. Mm-hmm. We go over how it works there, and we go over the recent election that just happened too. So if you're curious about the actual nuts and bolts of how this election stuff works, which, you know, maybe you should be, maybe you should be a little bit more curious Mm -hmm. and listener. I, I, I know you're intellectual. I know very intelligent person who wants to know how the world around you works. So stay tuned. You'll learn a little bit more about elections. So welcome back to the square. And this week, our interview guest is Jessica Overholt. She is office manager at the Erie County Board of Elections. We are bringing you extreme vegetables this week. <laughs> and like that, not only like are we like the the politics and economics podcast, but we are like let's get into the real nuts and bolts of health. Yeah, a little bit of work, a little bit of salt on them. Yep, no cheese, no cheese. Want them to be a little healthy? Maybe yeah. some olive oil. Olive, no butter, no butter. No better. It's, this is the extreme vegetables this week. So thanks for joining us, Jess. Thank you for having me. 
So uh, you are office manager at the Board of Elections. You are the Boo Republican office manager, right? I am. You have a Democratic counterpart? I do, Justin Rooney. And how long have you been with the board? Um, since Moses lost his sandals. Um, I think I've, I've been there since 2001. 2001. In many different capacities. Right. I, I, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, I worked at the board for a while. Uh, I worked there in 2001. I was there for September 11th, which was primary day. That was my first, that was our first election that I was working at the board. Right. Jeez. September 11th. Wow. Uh, they had to call off the primary. Oh, really? Yep. I remember sitting in Commissioner Adams X office and the question was asked, how do you stop an election? Like mid-election. And originally, the governor just pressed pause. So, like, if you had voted already on that day, you voted. But then voting was suspended. Um, and then the thought was, so when we held it again in two weeks, anyone who already voted wouldn't be able to vote again. But then they just essentially deleted that election. And yes. we, we started again okay. two weeks later. Wow. Yeah. I didn't uh, realize that happened at the time. Yeah, 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 it was crazy. Wow. Uh, I, was, I was working part-time at the board at the time. And uh, I didn't have to be in at like six o'clock in the morning, like most people are on election day or five o'clock in the morning, really. Um, I didn't have to come in until noon, which means I was the only person who actually like saw because, you know, this is the early days of the Internet, basically yeah. 2001. I was the only one who actually saw like the second plane hit the second no tower. Kidding. And wow. so like it was like story time. You know, here comes like, you know. 21 year old or 22 year old Jim uh, coming into to work and all these people are sitting around me like as I like explain like what it looked like to actually watch this happen. Yep. We don't have a TV in the office. We were all listening to it on the radio. It was a surreal day. Wow. So speaking of surreal, you're still at the board. I know. We want to talk to you a little bit about how things how things actually work. So this is, you know, civics and education for our listeners civics 101 so let's let's kick it off with uh i think the the correct way to talk about this is the first thing that happens which is early voting this is what our third year with early voting right second year second yeah um none of those votes count right like it's, it's all make-believe <laughs> no we just it's all like the paper ballot you put in there it's actually not a voting machine it's a shredder at that yeah. point no it's not that is <laughs> not true right it's like that banksy artwork huh? yep so the state passed that legislation two years ago, and that's kind of the fun part where, you know, the politicians, they set the rules, and they're like, okay, make it work. And then it's incumbent upon the boards, the individual county boards, to implement. So um, New York State, it's universal um, early voting, not throughout the state, within your county. So if you're a resident of the town of Tonawanda, and you happen to be um, in the city running some errands, you can vote anywhere on election day. So just the nuts and bolts of making that work is you have to have ballot on demand. Um, you have to have software that's able to, we load the um, early voting touchpad. So it's not a paper poll book. Traditionally, when you go to mm -hmm. vote on election day, your name is in a paper poll book. Obviously, you can't do that um, for universal right. countywide yeah, early voting. Pretty big book. Yes, yeah. gigantic. <laughs> Erie County... Um, there is a formula that states like how many early voting sites you're supposed to have per capita. In Erie County, we went above and beyond. Um, we have 38 early voting locations. I think by law, we only need to have seven, but we have one in every municipality and one in each ward of the city, and then a few more here and there. Like 
our office is an early voting location, and um, we added the Teddy Roosevelt inaugural site mm. this year. Um, and they reached out to us because it was Teddy's birthday was going to fall during early voting, so they thought it would be a good community outreach event. And it's a, cool. I had never been in there. Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful facility. People were coming from all over the county just to go vote there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really neat. Yeah. Nice. Um, so, yeah, we have the 38 early voting locations. And the first year we did it, it's one of those, you know, you do everything you can to prepare for something you've never done before. And then the first day of early voting, you're just sitting there. Okay, now what? <laughs> and we can monitor all of it. So every time someone checks in on one of the electronic poll books, we can see who has voted. We don't know how you voted. We can just see that people have voted and we're watching our ticker. We're like, holy crap. Like a thousand people voted in the first 20 minutes across Erie County. And it worked. It went off without a hitch. And then we never counted the votes. No, I'm just, that's <laughs> not a joke. That's a joke. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. As everybody knows, is whoever won, that's been decided a couple of years ago. Oh, okay. right. We're just following right. a script. Yeah. It was uh, Nostradamus decided who won. Wow, that's going way back. Yeah, yeah. Look, yeah. I mean, he was—he lived for a while. I guess so. So he—he he, uh, back. If you read Nostradamus, he—he he has a prophecy about Byron Brown winning the right-in vote. Oh no, kidding! We'll have yeah. to post that on Twitter. Yeah, we should have brought that up earlier. Yeah, yeah. So now you have all these votes for early voting. How do you? What happens after that? How do you marry them with votes on election day? Um. So we don't look. It's not like there's a running tally during. We have no idea. <clears throat> excuse me. We have no idea. Who's winning during early voting? We just know how many people have voted. By New York State election law, we can start counting the early voting votes one hour before polls close on election day. So at 8 o'clock p.m., that's when we can start running those results to then marry them to the election day machine votes. So with voting in New York State, there's machine votes, either casting on election day or early voting. Then there's the absentees, which last year, um, presidential election, global pandemic, record number of absentees. Right. I think sure. we had 120,000. Oh Normally goodness. in a presidential year, we'll receive maybe mid-20s, like 25,000. So wow. it was unprecedented, the amount of paper ballots that we had to process. And we get a lot of heat because people are like, on election day, who won? Like, we can't tell you because there's 120,000 absentee ballots that, by state law, we can't look at. Well, we can start looking at right after the election, but in our office, what we do is an absentee ballot, as long as it is postmarked on election day and received by our office, I think it's seven to 10 days after, it's valid. Um, so we don't start opening absentees until the cutoff date. So let's say it's 10 days after. Because you can kind of then, so your last ballot in, let's say if we started opening at nine o'clock on election day and then Jim Tamil's ballot comes, it's the last ballot in and then whoever he voted for gets, you, you would be able to tell it, it ruins the secrecy of the vote. So that's mm-hmm. why we wait the 10 days to honor ballot privacy. Um, and it takes a long time to count 120,000 yeah. um, absentees. So last year um, with early voting, unprecedented amount of mail-in ballots. Our staff was essentially, we were, I think we worked 35 days in a row. Oh my God. 10 to 15 hour days. Um, 
it was, there was a lot of crying in 2020, a <laughs> lot of crying. Just, we were exhausted in elections, basically. Well, thank we, all of you for doing that for all of us. You're Appreciate welcome. It. We, we like what we do. Like people don't do this um, because any of us are getting rich. It's, it's important work yeah. and our staff gets it. And then we have to put the entire election back together. So the early voting ballots, the election day ballots, the absentees, the provisional ballots. So let's say you move from Hamburg to Lancaster. You tell the cable company, you tell your mailman, you tell everyone, and you don't remember, oh, crap, i got to tell the Board of Elections. So you shouldn't go back to Lancaster to vote if you've moved to Hamburg. But it has to be a provisional ballot, what we call an affidavit ballot. So those have to be researched to make sure you are a registered voter, that you are who you say you are, and all of the pieces get put back together, and it takes time. Um, We have, I think it's like 30 days. Normally we have to certify by December 1st. So a November 2nd election, we still have to certify by November 1st. So it's taking all of those pieces, putting them back together, and we do it on an election district by election district level. So I think there's like 828 individual election districts. So you know, Tonawanda 54, Lancaster 1, we do it election district by election district to get the cumulative total. And um, when you're counting these ballots, is that pushing them into a machine? Do you have to sometimes manually count them? And- um, so no, the voting machines, they're called um, DS-200. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a computer, it's a scanner. So when you scan that ballot in, it's not communicating to anything it's just reading the bubbles that you fill in. The orientation marks will let us know who you voted for. So we get to the results. There's a tape that the poll workers print out at the end of the night. And there's also, um, we can get the results directly off the machine. So we start with the machine votes. We add in the early voting votes. So, um, no, we don't have to individually rescan every ballot. That mm. The DS-200 does that for us. Oh, sure. But I mean the um, the absentee ballots. Is that is that something you're scanning in? Um, no, we have a high speed. It's... Um, oh, okay. It's the DS850. Um, So that gets scanned through our high-speed scanner. Got it. And then, so that is all put on a report. But then we have to hand count the um, provisionals, the affidavit ballots. Yep, gotcha. Yeah, I remember uh, going over the affidavits, or the after-davids, as the one guy used to call them. (laughs) I still call them that as an homage. Yeah. uh, (laughs) He worked uh, there for 20 years, and he called them after Davids. Was, was he doing it ironically? No. Or? no. Oh, okay. No, oh, okay. no, no, no. Just, after just Davids. dumb. Okay. After Davids. <laughs> you know, basically, like, if anybody objects to those, like, it comes down to, like, the commissioners of the Board of Elections, right? Like, they go, yes, it's good, or no, it's not. Like, they, they do the, the Joaquin Phoenix thumbs up, thumbs down from Gladiator. Correct. Um, and the campaigns can object. Now, if the commissioners say it's good, we're going to count it at the canvas, um, and if a campaign's like, nope, I think that's a bad ballot, we'll make a photocopy of it. They can take it to a judge and the judge, if voter intent is clear, mm-hmm. we're going to count the ballot. So when it comes to the, um, Brown writing campaign, we didn't change our procedures at all for the canvas. Like we do this election district by election district canvas, regardless of whether there's a write in or not. So when the campaigns were observing us putting the election back together, Mind you, yes, it was a historic number of write-in votes, but we didn't change what we did. This is what we do every election. We just did it now with people over our shoulders. Mm -hmm. Um, We had five or six Canvas teams, a bipartisan team, a Dem and a Rep, going through each election district. Um, The Walton campaign had an observer at each table. The Brown campaign had an observer at each table. And 
on the first day, you know, if someone just wrote in Brown, some of the Walton folks were objecting. They're like, nope, they didn't write Byron Brown. We don't know who that is. I'm like, eh, you know, Brown. Or if they wrote in Brian Brown. We counted it. The voter intent is clear. The voter's an idiot, but, you know, their intent was right. clear. Right. Um, a lot of times, if they didn't fill in the bubble but still wrote in Byron Brown, the Walton folks were saying, nope, it's not valid. It, the voter intent is clear. Mm-hmm. So we're in the business of counting votes. That, that's what we do. Yeah. I mean, and, and to be fair, like, you know, when I worked at the board like 20 years ago, some of those objections might have been upheld then. It was a different standard back then where you, you had to fill out things a little bit more uh, definitively in New York state, at least, you know, the, the courts have help, have pushed that towards the, just the intent of the voter yes. as opposed to did the voter, you know, dot all their I's and cross all their T's. Correct. In our office, we've always aired on this. Like if voter intent is clear, mm-hmm. you know, we're not in the business of trying to stick it to somebody. It's just, if you wrote in B Brown, I'm giving mm-hmm. the vote to B Brown, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to, and I don't have a horse on the race. Like, yes, some of the people in our office are political outside of work, but when it comes to the actual functionality of elections, none of us are willing to go to prison over messing with an election. Like, just not going to do it. So why did you guys screw Ben Carlisle? Um, listen, <laughs> 219 votes. Like, I'm pretty sure, you know, that's... That was, it should have been enough. He exceeded expectations. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, realistically, <laughs> as far as my expectations, like, you know, he got 219 write-in votes. Like, I would have, I definitely would have guessed under 100. Mm-hmm. I would, you know, he would, I would have guessed that him and Jazz Miles would have been close to tied. But Ben Carlisle apparently has got a big family. Yeah. All over the city. Yeah. Another fun thing with the writing campaign with and early voting is since it's universal early voting, we knew that two residents of the city of Buffalo we're in the town of Brant, and there were we had to and we had to. I called it diving for ballots because the Brown and Wong campaigns wanted to see these ballots. So there were like let's say a thousand votes cast in the town of Brant during early voting. Two from Delaware nineteen. We had to sort through each of those wow. early and to produce them to show them to campaigns and allow them to observe. Yep, they, they saw every ballot. Wow. They, we showed them every ballot. Everything was above board. We communicated with the campaigns. I mean, and it wasn't contentious. In At least I didn't see it as contentious. You know, you have a representative from the Brown campaign and the Walton campaign seated at the table together. By the end of the week, we were all just kind of friendly with each sure. other. Like, mm. hey, just move on in, guys. You- yeah. All right. Did they carpool? I don't think so. They went oh. out to lunch together, though. No. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, so, so you mentioned earlier, like, the, the bipartisan nature of the board, right? That at no point is a Republican or a Democrat working on a project by themselves. It's always with a, a corresponding member of the other party, right? Correct. When we are, um, anytime we're handling ballots, it's always in a bipartisan fashion. So when it comes to mailing out absentee ballots, you know, we have a bipartisan team one person's putting the envelopes, like the labels on the envelopes, the other person's stuffing it, and then they're going in the mail trays. So everything is done in a bipartisan fashion. We don't have an equal, it's not like a one-for-one type thing because there are more um, Democratic employees. There's actual physical bodies in the office. But when it comes to handing out ballots, either before they're mailed out and upon their return, everything is done, Dem and a rep. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, going back to my time, I remember doing that. Now, when I was there, we had the old machines, the old lever machines. Oh, I love those. Those, all oh, those machines so were great. Cool. Uh, if it wasn't for if 
Florida fucking up the 2000 election, <laughs> we'd probably still be using those yeah, machines here yeah. in New York State. They, they worked. Um, the automatic voting machine is what it was called, the AVM. And they were produced, uh, was it Jamestown? Yeah. I believe yeah, is really. where they were made. Oh, wow. They weighed 600 pounds, and we owned them. The county owned them, and it was incumbent upon us to deliver them to the 300-some polling locations that we have. In Erie County, we are kind of like a one-stop shop. We program our own voting machines. We deliver our own voting machines. We print our own ballots. We do everything in-house. Sometimes that's... And actually, it, it always works out for, obviously, because the elections always happen. But with the absentees last year, the historic... Um, volume, other counties, they sh- they farm that out to printing companies. And if you recall, um, in some of the boroughs in the city, so say Jim Tamel, it said Jim Tamel on the mail envelope, but the return envelope had someone else's label on it. Like something happened at the printing house and they didn't catch it because the printers, they're not election officials. They don't know what they're looking for. So we do all of that in-house because our staff is trained. We know what we're looking for. It gets a little tedious, you know, when it's 120,000 that we're mailing out. I would think so. (laughs) But at least, you know, we can own our work. Mm -hmm. Now, going back to these old voting machines, uh, I recently gave blood at Kenmore Commons up on Elmwood Avenue, and they had one of those there in like where Connect Life was doing the the drive in the, in the gymnasium. So is that what happened to all those that they just stay someplace or? Um, no, we scrapped most of them. We, um, some, I don't know, companies, like some unions bought some from us so they could run their elections. Oh, some okay. schools, they were allowed to purchase them from us, but they were decertified by the state. So we legally, we couldn't run elections on them any longer. Mm-hmm. We still have some for posterity's sake. Okay. but So like for nostalgia's sake, if I wanted to go there to vote, I couldn't do that. On right, right. Okay. But, but I wanted to buy one yeah. and to like have like... A, daily votes for like what should we have for dinner like um, <laughs> like i'm voting straight line chicken parm yeah, what are like, we watching on netflix tonight right yeah uh, uh. i mean no the, those voting machines they they were a house uh, they they actually the company went out of business because the machines were built so well that they never like they never broke down and they wow nobody had to buy new ones that's impressive it was really impressive they just they worked right and i remember like like, because they they're all serial numbered, right? And like, there was ones in the city of Buffalo that were like serial numbered, like in the fifty thousands. And I I think it was in Eden. I was setting up a voting machine, and its serial number was like four. Wow! <laughs> oh my god! Yep, they put themselves out of business. They made a quality quality product. Yeah. So even number four was built that well. They didn't yeah. have to have a version two point No, just so that's a good engineer. Yeah. Wow. Commissioner Moore was gifted one by the company. It has like a plaque on the side of it with his, he has it in his office still. Um, it's his for the rest of time. Mm. So it, they're going to put it in that black box that they're building in Australia, right? <laughs> have you have you heard about this? I have not. We're going to go on a tangent now. This is because Ree's not here, so he can't he can't yeah, right. hold me in. Right. Their scientists are building like what they're calling the uh, globe's black black box in Australia, like the Australian outback. Um, it's basically going to document like how we fucked up climate change and let the world be destroyed. Okay. Uh, in case like another civilization ever stops and it was like, I wonder what happened to this planet. Like if they make their way to like rural Australia, they'll find like the documentation. And, Is this and, also like that hut that they found on the moon? I was just thinking that. I yeah. wonder if that's something placed there by an earlier civilization. Right. Uh, this is how we screwed it all up. Right. right. Yeah. That's, I, hopefully it's in English. <laughs> 
At least, yeah, at least in binary. Do they even speak English in Australia? I don't even know what they're saying half the time. No. <laughs> they speak felonies. It's like that Portlandia episode with Birdman. <laughs> anyway. So what's coming up next, like for the board of elections? Cause, like the board of elections, like everybody thinks the board of elections. Well, like they, they know, like they handle like primary day and and general election, but like you guys have like bullshit, like the village elections too. You have to handle right. We just finished um, um, this Tuesday fire district elections, which I don't under. It's some sort of weird municipal law, depending on where you live and how your fire district is incorporated or whatever. Um, some people vote for their fire commissioners. Um, so that's this Tuesday, um, and then. Redistricting next year. Oh, wow. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's when all the lines get redrawn. And then we have to then, once again, these are the elected officials. They make these rules and then they look at our office and make it work. So mm-hmm. we have to, essentially, it's a clean slate. So, you know, Jim lives in Lancaster 22. If it is redrawn, we have to then just rewrite our software to put Jim in. Lancaster 19, the legislative district 7, congressional district 26, fire district number 2, Lancaster school district. It's all of that needs to then get right to the individual voter level. We have to make sure that people are voting in the proper election districts. Then all their cards have to go out, right? Yep. Yep. We do the postcard check every year by law. That is our office reaching out to the 650,000, 100,000 voters that we have. Are you still living here? Are you still receiving mail here? And then it gets, if you're not there, it gets sent back to us. And then that starts the process of us purging and removing people. And we don't purge, actually. We just make them inactive. And you have a couple years time to get back to us to reactivate yourself. But we don't just delete you from the voter rolls, but we will inactivate you. We do that. We um, help with the school district elections. So when you go to vote in your school board votes in May, they're utilizing our machines. They're using our ballots, our machines, but they're not technically our elections, but we just do that as a service. We don't charge the school districts. Those are in May. Petitions hit the ground mm-hmm. in February, and those are all then filed at our office, and that's how you know people officially get on the ballot. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a committee year next year, so each town has a Republican committee, um, a Democratic committee, conservative committee, and that's, once again, at the election district level. So people, you know, I, and I like that aspect of it, where it's your neighbors representing you on a town committee who's nominating your town candidates. And then we then take all of that information and put it on the ballot. But it's just, it's it's grassroots. It's people in your town. That's how the ball mm-hmm. starts. That's how people get on the ballot. And that all comes back to our office as well. Uh, so, like, uh, talking about, like, petitions, because, you know, that's, you know, that, that that is like if you're running for office for the first time and you're never involved before, but the petition process can be kind of mysterious, which it's weird. It's not obscure. It's not mysterious. I don't think it's mysterious having done it plenty of times, but I've also been doing it since I was like 21. So like I've been kind of inured to, to doing it. Um, but, you know, so you guys, you don't. When you get your petitions, you just look at the number of signatures on there and go, okay, and it's up to somebody else to object. Correct. You just assume that all the signatures are okay unless somebody objects and sp- uh, files specific objections, right? Yes. Yeah, so there's signature requirements dependent um, upon which office you're seeking. It's a percentage of either the town or just basically of the, um, the office. So if you're running for town board, as opposed to county executive, you only need 500 signatures to run for town board, but you need 1,500 to run for county executive. 
So yes, once the petition is filed, we look at it and on its face, prima facie. It has to be, there is very specific election law that determines what needs to be on your petition. The office you're running for, the dates, all of that. So we have samples of those on our websites as well, but it's incumbent upon us. We just, on its face, we, yes, this is the valid form of the petition. Yes, it has the proper number of signatures. If you meet those requirements, it's it's valid. We accept it. But if you have an opponent who wishes to object, they can then come back and say, the signatures aren't good, the dates are out of, something along those lines, and then we have to work those objections. They have to be specific about it, right? It's a two-step process. So when a petition comes in, you can file, it's called a general objection, and that's just basically saying, I object. Right. Um, And it's a placeholder. And then there's a certain number of days in which then the specific objection, they can't just say it's bad, throw it out. That's the first step, though, is like, I object. And then you have to tell us what we're looking for. What specifically are you objecting to? And it's a line by line. The specific objections will say on page four, signature on the ninth line. That person doesn't live at that address. And then a bipartisan team at the board, we go and look to validate or invalidate that objection. Mm -hmm. And that is all on a time frame as well. After So as soon as the petition is received by our office, the clock starts ticking as to when the general objections have to be received and the specific objections. So once and then once the clock stops ticking, you can no longer object. You can't two months later be like, oh, hey, I don't even think this person should be on the ballot. Like, sorry, Charlie. Right. That door has closed. Like, again, uh, story time. Like my uh, when I first started working at the Board of Elections, the first petitions that I was part of a team to review were the mass yellow recall petitions that Jimmy Griffin ran. Oh, wow. To recall the mayor. My favorite thing on there was somebody, maybe it was Tony Massiello, signed his own recall petition. I don't know. But there was somebody who signed it, and they knew the mayor's address. Oh. And the signature was so close that we couldn't invalidate it and say that Tony Masso didn't sign his own recall <laughs> oh, petition. Wow. Okay. I don't remember that. Yeah. Wow. I mean, those petitions end up being garbage anyways because there was, there was a lot of, like, Mickey Mouses and Donald Ducks not signing those petitions. Um, and, like, there's a lot of, like, you had to be a resident of the city of Buffalo in order sure. to sign the recall, and they were just going to, like, like the Amherst Street Wegmans and standing in front and having everybody <laughs> sign them. And, yeah. you know, so, um, but uh, that was, like, my first, like, you know, they turned in like 2,000 signatures, needing like 1,500, and like 1,000 signatures were no good. Oh my God. We got a lot of calls on election day. Why wasn't the mayor's race on my ballot? Now you pull up the voter because you live in West Seneca. Right. You don't get to vote for the mayor of Buffalo <laughs> if you don't live in the city. So many calls. Yeah, in my polling location, there was someone just trying to vote for Buffalo mayor. It's like, oh, boy. I'd assume that it was probably pretty rampant. It mm-hmm. was ridiculous the amount of phone calls we received people getting their absentee ballots why isn't the mayor's race on here you live in hamburg (laughs) right (laughs) uh ridiculous yeah i mean i i would like to a la carte like pick and choose which elections i vote in like you know for me like personally like fuck judges who cares like it doesn't matter yes i don't disagree with you <laughs> on that uh like nobody know like all right that's not nobody but very few people have like enough knowledge of the le- legal system and of the individual candidates to make an, a decent uh judgment on who should be judges 
I don't disagree with that statement either. <laughs> I think I mean I think it's crazy in New York that we elect judges, but I would have liked to vote for the Hamburg supervisor race, even though I live in Lancaster this year, because I had some strong opinions about that. You don't say. <laughs> <laughs> what is what's new? What's coming up? Is there any any new laws being thrown at you guys? God, by I the, hope not. Um, not that I can foresee at this moment. Actually, um, yes, I'm going to the um, elections commissioner conference in a few weeks. And that's when we normally sit down and talk. There's stuff coming with absentee and I'm picking my brain here. I think they're going to, oh, that's what it is. We're going to, they're going to change the calendar. I believe this is all, nothing is set in stone with us. I believe we're going to, you know, how I explained earlier that we wait to start opening all of the absentees. I think they're going to change the law where, nope, like we start opening on election night. And that's because the candidates, they get ticked. Like they want to know at nine o'clock on election day, did I win? Did I lose? Mm -hmm. Um, They don't understand the election calendar, like how we put everything back together. And last year with so many absentee votes, like people did not know um, until we opened all of the absentees. So I believe the state legislature, our calendar is set by the New York state legislature. It's not the board, the state board of elections that sets the calendar. It's the um, New York state legislature. And I believe they might move to adjust the opening of absentee dates. So that would just be something where we have to have, you know, our ducks in a row to accommodate those adjustments. But I don't think, I mean, Lord only knows what they're going to throw at us and like I've said a couple times already, they just they just look mm-hmm. at us and say, make it work. And mm-hmm. we do. We haven't missed an election yet. Um, mm-hmm. That's what I always like to say. So like, you're kind of like the MacGyvers of the election process. In that very regard. much so, <laughs> indeed. Mm-hmm. And, and we're, I think, I feel like, I think we're lucky here in Erie County that we have a full-time professional board of elections. Sure. A lot of counties across New York State don't. Yes, they don't. Um, they have a staff of like four people. I think people forget, though, like, it is a big county, you know, so it, um, per cap, you know, it's downstate, the New York City Board, and then us, the largest county in um, New York State. So it we do need a full-time board. There's been talk of, because we are appointed, this is not a civil service position, we work at the pleasure of our commissioners, there's been talk to make this a civil service job, and I'm like, fine, make a test, I will take that test, I will ace that test. But, I, you know, there's pros and cons of that. Like, if it's a civil service job, like last year, 35 days in a row, 12-hour days, if you have a civil, like, yeah, nope, I'm tired, I'm going home, no, I'm not working this weekend. Like, if you have that protection, I just, I don't know how we would have done last year if, you know, I mean, but at the same time, the pe- people on our staff, they are committed to running fair, mm-hmm. honest, and accurate elections. Well, I mean, I don't know, Ryan, you got anything else? I'm good. Yeah, I yeah. think I think just, you know, thanks for uh, showing here and, and helping educate our listeners. Thank you for having me. Um, if anyone listening, you know, if you're a teacher or something like that and you want someone to come out and talk to, like, your civics class, your government classes, that's something that I've done in the past as well. I like what I do. Yeah. Also, if you're listening, uh, if, you, if you have election day off, you have primary day off, and you think maybe I'd like to get involved – uh, I know you guys are always looking for more inspectors. It takes approximately 4,000 poll workers to staff a November election. Um, we train you. We pay you for training. We pay you $190 for working on the election. It's a long day. But, yes, please, please, we are always looking for folks to come 
and help us on election day. Especially if you're like a unicorn where like, say you're a Democrat in Clarence or a Republican in Lovejoy. Like if you're one of those unicorns where like everybody around you is the other party affiliation, you really could be useful. Yes. And when you go vote on election day, be nice to those folks because no one's getting rich doing that job. They're doing it as essentially community service. So we thank them and appreciate our poll workers. Right, and and, and it, it is a crazy long day. Like, polls open at 6, which means they're probably there at 5.30. Correct. And then polls close at 9, which means they're probably not out of there until 9.30. Yep. And, yeah, they get, like, an hour for lunch and, you know, maybe some time to go vote themselves. But for the most part, they're just there for, like, 16 fucking hours. That's crazy. Trying yep. to make sure that democracy works. And sitting next to, like, you know, crazy Betty over here with rage and halitosis, you know, so right. it's a long, long day. All right. Well, thank you, Jess. Thanks for coming. Do you have any social media that you want to put out there or no? No. Good. <laughs> All right. Never talk to me again. Never. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jess. Thanks. Thank you guys.